Let's go right in. Chan Bema Hung
Settle your body, speech, and mind in the natural states as you've done before. you settle in your core, having already settled the outer shells of your body, the speech, the respiration, the mind, when you rest in your core, simply in awareness, resting in its own place, still, cognizant, and luminous. Sustain that unwavering flow of mindful presence without distraction, without grasping. For this session, I'll review or repeat some of the pointing out instructions of Padmasambhava given earlier, where you're already in the flow of awareness of awareness, you've already turned your awareness to inspect, to fathom the nature of consciousness itself, to break through all the veils so that awareness knows itself nakedly, sees its own face. So referring to consciousness, Padmasambhava, 
states it is not grounded in the nature of any shape or color. So it is free of the extreme of eternalism or substantialism. It's not really there as an entity. While it is not existent, it is steady, clear, a steady, clear, natural luminosity that is not created by anyone, so it is, it is free of the extreme of nihilism. So it is not found either as an entity, as something that clearly exists, or as a non-entity something that has no existence whatsoever. It did not originate from a certain time, nor did it arise from certain causes and conditions, so it is free of the extreme of birth. Seek out that awareness that is unborn. primordially unconditioned. Never subject to change.
mind does not die or cease at a certain time. So it is free of the extreme of cessation. Seek out that awareness that is unceasing. While it is not existent, its unimpeded creative power appears in all manner of ways. So it is free of the extreme of singularity, which is to say it cannot be identified as one. Although it appears in various ways, it is liberated without having any inherent nature. So it is free of the extreme of multiplicity. Thus it is called the view that is free of extremes. In short, it is neither one nor many, and very much to the point, this pristine awareness transcends everything you might possibly think about it, every conceptual category. So leave your concepts, your assumptions, your preconceptions behind. 
and release, descend into that awareness that transcends them all. It is said to be free of bias and partiality. In terms of a short commentary, our minds are very subject to bias and partiality, to preconceptions, to editing, to distortions of all kinds. But all such tendencies are transcended in this domain of awareness. cannot be contaminated by anything, but it's primordially pure, radiant, luminous, and open.
This alone is called the mind of the Buddha. The mind of a sentient being, that which becomes a Buddha, that which wanders in samsara, and that which experiences joy and sorrow, are all this alone. a subtle middle way here. And that is the mind, the dualistic coarse mind is clearly not identical to pristine awareness, otherwise we'd be all Buddhas. And yet it is not other than pristine awareness the mind of the Buddha. Otherwise, we'd never have any chance of awakening, of becoming Buddhas ourselves. Neither the same, nor fundamentally other than. immediately present, but when we are not attending to it, it's invisible, hidden in plain sight. If this did not exist, there would be no one to experience samsara, or nirvana, or any joy and sorrow, which would imply a comatose extreme of nihilism. Let's continue in silence.
always lying down on the job. Alaso. So I'll give a little bit of commentary to this passage, because I didn't do it before. I somehow jumped over it. And we will be moving on this evening, so try to wrap up some loose ends. So this is on page 125. And I've made some minor edits. Actually, maybe not so minor, but some edits in the translation which you might want to note. So, Patna Sambhava is here. This is right in the, in the stream of his pointing out instructions. Uh, he states this, this consciousness is not grounded in the nature of any shape or color, so it is free of the extreme of eternalism. This word, um, eternalism, that's a, a very literal translation. It's used fairly frequently. Takta, just the view of things being eternal or forever. Um, it's also called yuta, the view of the extreme of existence. Yeah, so those two, mubita, maybe also the extreme of substantiality. On the one hand, we can simply say, make a very brief, com- uh, brief comment, and that is we have these conceptual categories that we human beings have devised, we define, we redefine, we mo- modify our definitions over time of existence and non-existence, to be or not to be. Reality doesn't define those categories for us. We define them. And different languages, different contexts, philosophy, different sciences, early physics, late physics, and so forth, define these terms differently. So clearly they are our creation, not something we just received lock, stock, and barrel all by itself from nature. And that goes for existence and non-existence. Well, Brickba doesn't fit into either of those categories. So there's one very straightforward interpretation. Another interpretation, because this theme comes up a lot in, for example, the writings of Nagarjuna, of, of neither existence nor ex- non-existence, neither, neither, oh, there's so many, not, 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 you know. What comes out of the middle way view here, which is really foundational for the Dzogchen view, is that if things did exist by their own inherent nature, if they were really there, for example, the physical world and all of its individual components, from elementary particles, atom molecules, right up to galactic clusters, if, these, if this physical world and all of its individual components, if they really existed by their own nature, independent, intrinsically bearing their own attributes, independent, prior to and independent of any measurement, any conceptual designation, any verbal designation, then the implication is that they would be permanent. Every component would be permanent, unchanging. It would be intrinsically holding tenaciously, ferociously, in an adamantine fashion, its attributes. Well, one of its attributes, one of the attributes of Emerson is, where's your location? That's where you're located. That's one of your attributes. You're, You're over there, you're not over there. That's one of your attributes. But if you intrinsically hold that attribute, that characteristic, then you can't move. You couldn't, you, if it's there right in your core, that you are holding that attribute, your shape, your size, your qualities, and so forth, if they were intrinsic, inherent, you'd be immutable, internally immutable, and you could not move through space, and moreover, you couldn't possibly have any type of interaction with Gache or with Jeffrey because they would also be in their iron-clad, hermetically sealed identities, 
There's Gache, frozen. Jeffrey, frozen. So immutable, eternal. If something had substantial existence, inherent nature, it would be just that. Unrelated to anything else and totally immutable and therefore totally unknowable because you'd have to interact with it to know it. In other words, totally impossible. So it would be frozen. So that would be the implication. I won't try to defend that. Just say, that's what you find. You don't have to believe it. That's what you find. He says, Padmasambhava continues, while it is not existent. I previously had non-existent. Um, I don't want to say, that sounds like an affirmative statement. It is non-existent. But it's not an affirmative statement. It's a negative statement. It's not existent. It doesn't fit into the category of existence. It's not saying it does fit into this category of non-existent. It's not Existent. I think it's a, not a trivial difference. While it is not existent, you can't identify it as something that is real, that fits within this category or parameter of existence. It is steady, clear, a natural luminosity that is not created by anyone. So it is, it is free of the extreme of nihilism. So it's not non-existent, because that would be nihilism, and it's not existent, because that would be the extreme of existence, substantialism, eternalism. It did not originate from a certain time, nor did it arise from certain causes and conditions, so it is free of the extreme of birth. Once again, one can look in two ways, and that is simply, the simple, straightforward, and accurate interpretation is, it's never born. There was never any point at time in which it arose, period. So that's it, then we're finished. But we can also slip this right back into the middle way view of Nagarjuna, where he raises the issue of well, a stock, a plant, a person, a galaxy, anything, it is, is it born from itself? Was it already there and it was born from itself? Well, that doesn't make any sense. It didn't need to be born. It was already there. But was it born from... And now here we're talking about inherently existent, truly born. It really absolutely wasn't there, and now it absolutely is there. It had no existence whatsoever, and now it's really there. That kind of birth. Not a mere convention. And so imagine that something is absolutely not there at all. We assume that, and that is exactly the view of reification. It's absolutely not there, or it's absolutely there. To be or not to be, and we're taking it very seriously, we're reifying it all. If something is absolutely not there at all, then number one, it's not arising from itself, because there's nothing to arise from. It doesn't exist at all. But if something is absolutely not there, it can't arise from something else that is. So it can't arise from other. How is that conceivable that it could? If something is absolutely non-existent, how could it emerge from something else that is absolutely existent? It's a complete mismatch, right? A disconnect. So neither from self nor from other. Because the other would never spit it out. The other would be holding tenaciously onto its own inherent existence and its own intrinsic qualities. It wouldn't give up anything. Right? Would I... They're mine, intrinsically mine, absolutely mine. I'm not giving you nothing. So you're not arising from me, buddy. If you're non-existent, hang out. But I'm not giving you anything, right? It doesn't exist from self, doesn't exist from other, doesn't, exist, doesn't arise from both self and other. 
we've kind of eliminated that already, and it doesn't arise from neither self nor other because that's simply inconceivable and makes no sense. So that's the, another interpretation here, but we're just kind of weaving that right back into the Madhyamaka view. Even on a conventional level, Rikpa does not arise or pass. But if we weave the understanding or the insight into Rikpa, into the fundamental, the underlying themes of middle way, it does not inherently arise or inherently pass either. Okay? The mind does not die. The mind he's referring to now, very subtle mind. That's it. You have to watch this. He's certainly not referring to coarse mind. Does my mind, when I die, does my mind, Alan Wallace's mind, that is arising independence upon my brain? We all agree. Neuroscientists, I, well, not all neuroscientists. You know, I'm not going to go there. Uh, most of us would agree that the mind is arising independence upon the brain, except for people who just deny it mind exists whatsoever, you know, like Daniel Dennard or whatever. Uh, but most of us you know, are more sensible. And in a very sensible way, my thoughts, my emotions, my visual perceptions, memories and so forth are arising independence upon this brain. Damage the brain and I lose my memory, I lose my sight, I lose language ability and so forth and so on. It's kind of like, is there thing, anything there that is not obvious? Right? So the coarse mind clearly dies. There's no question. Subtle mind, subtle mind, the substrate consciousness, it doesn't die because it didn't arise independence upon the brain. So therefore, the brain comes and goes, but the subtle mind is more, con- more subtle than that. It's not contingent upon brain. Now, that's not physically measurable, but then so what? Nor are your thoughts and emotions desires. It doesn't mean they don't exist. This is where actually looking at the mind comes in, and there's no replacement for it. But here he's referring to subtle mind, because he's referring to, we're really going deep here, right? Subtle mind, subtle, very subtle mind. And very subtle mind is Rikpa. So the very, very, very subtle mind does not die or cease at a certain time, so it is free of the extreme of cessation. While it is not existent, doesn't fit into that category, this Rikpa now, now we're really going deep, it's unimpeded creative power. This is the Rikpa Tzel, the creative power, the creative expressions of Rikpa appear in all manner of ways. So it is free of the extreme of singularity. Rikpa is not one thing. Like when, you, when a yogi dies and goes in the clear light of death, that he slips into one, like somebody else's, or one cosmic soup where you lose, you, lose, you lose everything of you and slip back into some cosmic transcendent soup, like God, that's totally other than you, but you, you got, so you, you gave up yourself and now you're somebody else. Not that. They always say, rang rik, rang rik. Your own pristine awareness. But that means Natu has rangrik. She has her own pristine awareness. I have my own pristine awareness. She's not going to get mine. I don't, we don't share. You know. And we don't get somebody else's, like Buddhas or gods. Do not look for the Buddha outside yourself. That's pretty clear. But it's not shared, so she has one, right? Except, how many are there? How about Maitreya Buddha? Bodhisattva Kashyapa Buddha, the previous one. Different rikpas? Oh, you mean they're all the same? In other words, there's only one, and basically they're all God. They're all emanation of one God. Maitreya is the same as Buddha Shakyamuni. Buddha Shakyamuni is the same as Kashyapa? No. Oh, you mean they're different? They have different Dharmakayas? No. You've just hit the wall here. This is the wall you need to break through. Although it appears in various ways, it is liberated, it's free. 
without having any inherent nature. Without having any inherent nature, so it is free of, the, free of the extreme of multiplicity. It's not really many things, and it's not really one thing. Thus, it is called the view that is free of extremes. So people who are well-trained in Madhyamaka, especially Prasangika Madhyamaka, you will have learned very well and very rightly that the very definition of something existing by its own inherent nature, truly existing, existing from its own side, by its own intrinsic identity, all of these, for Dembar Dupa, I just gave the Tibetans for all of those. They're very, very common. They run through all the teachings of Madhyamaka. If something were to exist by its own inherent nature, how would it exist? Prior to and independent of any conceptual or verbal designation. Right? That's it. If something's already there, prior to and independent of any conceptual designation, that's inherently existent. All phenomena. And now we'll look into the Prashampanamita Sutra. All phenomena from elementary particles, let's say the tiniest, minute little particles of matter, all the way up to Namkyan, the Buddha's omniscient mind. They say everything. That they're, that are, that are, they're saying, we haven't left out anything. From elementary particles up to Buddha mind. That includes, and that includes samsara and nirvana. Nirvana is definitely included here. Everything. Okay? Everything is empty of inherent nature. Whoops. Mission control, we have a problem. How could Buddha mind exist only in dependence upon conceptual designation? That means Ripa would depend on conceptual designation, which means it would fit into a category, which means I think it must be inherently existent. But then, oh, this means Dzogchen and the whole teachings of the third turning of the wheel of Dharma, and Dharma, Dharma of the Dharma, Dharmakaya, of Tathataka Garbha, and so forth. Uh-oh. Mission control, we've got a problem. Because the Prashnapanamita, that second turning of wheel of Dharma, said all phenomena from elementary particles to Buddha mind are all empty of inherent nature. And when we see the Prasanga view, which is widely regarded as the pinnacle, they're saying, well, that means it doesn't exist by its own nature, it arises independent upon conceptual designation, right? Yeah. So we're feeling kind of comfortable there. And then we say, well, this transcends all conceptual elaborations. Was before any conceptual elaboration. Transcends all conceptual elaboration. If all conceptual elaborations one day end, it's beyond the three times, beyond the past, present, and future. So, uh-oh, I'm feeling nervous. It looks like there's an inconsistency here. Unless you actually listen carefully. If Rikpa transcends the categories of existence and non-existence, then it's neither conventionally existent nor inherently existent. Neither one. It neither exists by its own inherent nature because it doesn't exist. It doesn't fit into the category of existence. Therefore, it doesn't fit into the category of inherent existence. That's a logical immediacy, right? implication. If it doesn't fit into the category of existence, if you're not going to say it exists, then you can't possibly say it exists in a certain fashion, such as inherently exists or doesn't inherently exist. Does not compute, does not compute. If Isabel is not a giraffe, if that's the case, then she's neither a tall giraffe nor a short giraffe. She's not any kind of giraffe. 
So just stop giraffing her. Because she just doesn't fit into that conceptual category at all. As soon as you say she's some kind of giraffe, you're already wrong, so just give it a rest. If all you can think of is in terms of giraffes, Isabel is inconceivable and ineffable. Because you live in the world that's permeated by only giraffes. Namo. <laughs> to the, the one who transcends giraffeness. Oh, yeah. So there it is. So I guess mission control is okay. But the second and third turning world drama, they work out. I'll read a little bit more. This next one's interesting, though. It's, free of, it's, view, it's a view of the free of extremes. It is said to be free of bias and partiality. Boy, that sounds good. Because this has been the noble and extremely wonderful and, and effective ideal of science since Galileo. You know, they're really trying to understand reality without bias, without partiality, without prejudice. They're really trying to see it as it is. The ideal of objectivity. It's a wonderful ideal. It's worked very, very well. And it's always a struggle. It's always a struggle. But they're, they're taking on the good fight. Right? There's no, if you think there's sarcasm in my voice, there isn't any. Were the founders of modern science, Galileo and Kepler and Copernicus and Newton and so forth, did they have prejudices and biases? Did they have metaphysical assumptions that flowed into their science? Absolutely, yes. They're all Christians. They're all Christians. They all believed in the, the Genesis account of creation. They all believed that. They're all Christian, traditional Christians. You know. There was no geology. There was no... There was no knowledge of how far the stars were away. There was no knowledge of how ancient the universe is or that there are other galaxies. So they're taking that pretty literally. I mean, to a large extent, you know. And so did they have biases, prejudice, because they lived in Italy, they lived in England, they lived in Germany? Of course. How could they not? But they did their best to identify their prejudices, their biases, and so forth, and seek to transform them by fine technology, making precise measurements, and using the acultural language and logic of mathematics. It's not Italian. That's not Italian, German, or English. It's not 17th century. You don't look at mathematics and say, oh, that's 17th century mathematics. Oh, that's 18th century mathematics. You know, if it's sound mathematics, then it doesn't matter whether it's Euclid or it's Riemann. You know, it's, it has its reality, but it kind of doesn't, it's not located to culture or place. But underlying the whole growth of modern science until the mid-19th century, pretty much until Darwin, until then. So that's a pretty good stretch. That's 250 years from 1609 to 1859. 1609, publication of Galileo's The Starry Messenger, his first big publication. 1859, the publication of Origin of Species by Darwin. It's a pretty good stretch, quarter of a millennium. And during this time, many, 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 I think it's easy to say, safe to say, the majority of scientists. They were natural philosophers back then. They called themselves natural philosophers. They were really consciously and deliberately in pursuit of a God's eye perspective on reality. That is, they assumed that God created everything as, as Einstein, in a rather thin way, as, a, as a, 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 an advocate of deism, kind of a, just a higher intelligence that somehow created the universe and then stepped back and did nothing. But they're all in pursuit of, called apo apotheosis, I'm a religious studies scholar. Apotheosis, where it's where the mind of man, and they were, they were all men back then, 
why the mind of man ascends to the perspective of God and views reality from God's own perspective. And even if you can't quite get there, like what the phoenix getting close to the sun and then melting back, but you get as close as you can, you put on your asbestos suit and get as close as you can, the scientists, many, many scientists believe now that they are approaching asymptotically a more and more thorough, precise, accurate representation of what is already out there. An inherently existent, totally objective, physical world composed of space-time, matter, energy, and their emergent properties. And there's a lot of work to go, but they've made a lot of progress, and that map that is giving the contours, the details, the geography of the universe, of all of nature, it's getting better and better and better, and that is the progress of science. And what they're approximating is, if they're back in, from that quarter of a millennium, what God actually sees. God is seeing his universe. He created one. He's one God. They're very mano-mano. Mano a mano, right? One God looking at his one universe. And the scientists from the time of Copernicus and right on through, it was a mystical quest. I mean, what else do we call this? And again, I say that with no sarcasm. It's a mystical quest to know reality as God himself sees it and God's perspective is absolutely objective because it has no contamination, bias, or prejudice from human beliefs, language, thoughts, our anthropocentric way of viewing reality by way of our senses and so forth. This was a mystical quest. There's no doubt about it. Where they're seeking to arise, to transcend the limitations of human senses and the human mind. And so... That was the origin of the ideal of objectivity. That you view an absolutely objective universe that is out there before humans ever came along, and you view it with all of the objectivity of God's own mind. So two types of objectivity. It's absolutely independent of the human mind. That's what scientists are really interested in. And this one kind is ontological objectivity, and the other one is epistemological objectivity, and that is you view it without subjective bias, distortion, filtration, and so forth, right? So God's eye view. That's what they've been seeking. Now, in the words of Thomas Nagel, they're seeking a view from nowhere. Because since Darwin, then, the number of scientists who are really following that kind of clearly theistic pursuit, that apothe apotheosis, uh, so that pursuit of apotheosis, are diminishing. Very few scientists now would say, let, or, let alone in a publication, I'm looking for how reality looks from God's perspective. You can't say that anymore. But until Darwin, you could. What have we just read here? That Rikpa is free of bias and partiality. Is this the, the Buddhist version of a God's eye view? Because he says in the very next word, the very next line, this alone is called the mind of the Buddha. The mind of the Buddha, this alone, is free of bias and partiality. It looked like we've just stumbled upon a God's eye view in Buddhism. Is it the same as the Judeo-Christian, the, the Muslim, well, the, the Jewish, the Christian, and the Muslim, or the Abrahamic vision? Because they're all sharing the same God, God of Abraham. Is it the same? One God, one universe, one right answer, one right perspective on the one reality that is the only reality. Oh, that's really core Abrahamic. Right or wrong? Right or wrong, but that's absolutely core Abrahamic. That's why we call it universe, not multiverse. And that's why we speak of God, not gods, in the Abrahamic. Right? So is this the same? Is this basic, oh, we're all one, one happy family here. Well, no, it's not the same. 
have to, if we are going to take these teachings seriously, then yes, Rigpa is free of bias and partiality. There is a Rigpa I, a Dharmakaya I perspective. There is a way of viewing reality from the perspective of Dharmakaya. And that's pure vision. But what's your vision like? From your perspective, what's your environment like? What is your environment? It's Akanishta. It's pure land. From your perspective, there are no sentient beings. From your perspective, all sentient beings have never been asleep, have never been wandering in samsara. They're never really out there. From your perspective, there was never a point at which samsara arose, never a point at which it subsides, never a point at which a sentient being came into existence or is no longer in existence. From your perspective, it's pure vision, 360 degrees. It's pure vision which you're trying to emulate when you're practicing state regeneration, but you're actually realizing when your mind descends or ascends any way you like it, transcends to the perspective of Rikpa, the great perfection. You're viewing reality, and how do you see it? The great perfection. That's it. The pure equality of samsara and nirvana, and that's from the deepest hell realms up to the pure lands. And you're seeing it all homogeneously of equal purity from your perspective, without bias or partiality. This is the reality that rises up to meet you from your perspective as one who is awake, one who is lucid. From your perspective in your own dharmakaya, you're utterly transcendent. There is no motion. Jadel. There is no motion. It's primordially unmoving. It's beyond the three times. How could it move? The very notion of motion has no, no meaning. From your perspective, Jadel. Absolutely immutable. Your own awareness. Absolutely immutable. Transcendently, inconceivably immutable. And unmoving. Chatel, devoid of activity. That's your essential nature. Which, if you left it there, that would sound a lot like deism. Some higher intelligence, but doesn't do anything at all. Right? But it's not. Because that's not the whole picture. That's its essential nature, but its manifest nature is Ranjin in Tibetan. Essential nature is Mo. Manifest nature is Ranjin. And it's Ranjin. The, the manifest nature is luminosity. That all appearances in all the realms of existence of samsara and nirvana, all appearances are illuminated by dharmakaya. When you go right down to the ground, they have no appearance whatsoever apart from dharmakaya, Buddha nature, pristine awareness, primordial consciousness. That's the source of all illumination. Your little substrate consciousness, yeah, that's the source of your illumination. That's the source of your appearances when you're dreaming and so forth. But now, no, we're going to the ground here. The, the non-local, atemporal ground, it not only has its essential nature, which is utterly inconceivable, it has its manifest nature, and its manifest nature is it itself not only sees all appearances are its own effulgences, displays. Sounds a bit like a creator. In fact, Padmasambhava in the, in the Vajra Essence and many other, says, many other sources says, referring to this mind, the all-creating, the all-performing king. Sounds a lot like God. All-creating, all-performing, the, the doer, the agent of everything. Oh. Sambhokakaya, appearances. 
But is it just making all these appearances? Or is there anything more to it? Because we covered Dhammakaya, Sambhogakaya, and then it goes to Namanakaya, Tujikunkyap. The essential nature is empty, manifest nature, luminous. And then finally, the display, Tujikunkyap, all pervasive compassion. That all the appearances are rising as manifestations of compassion. Hard to fathom. But that's what it says. That's for all of Adriana. And there's no difference here in Dzogchen. But, does a, but does, a, does a Buddha only have, and we can't put any gender on this, it's ridiculous, does the Buddha have only the Buddha's perspective? That's Jitawa Kembe Yeshe. That's the primordial consciousness that knows reality as it is. It's ultimate nature. It's a mode of existence. But that's not all there is. That's Dharmakaya. One aspect of Dharmakaya. I would say, going on a little bit limb here, uh-oh, opinion alert, when an arhat, an arhat, while alive, but now I just want to go to the, the post-mortem arhat, where the coarse continuum of mind is finished, but even the subtle continuum of mind, conditioned mind, Bhavanga, cut irreversibly. But I think by sheer logic, we have to say nirvana doesn't die. We've already said that. So how could, how could that realization of nirvana stop? If it's deathless, how can it stop? So there must be some dimension of consciousness, but not conditioned consciousness that continues to realize that in a timeless and inconceivable fashion. What does the dead arhat know? Jitta Kembeyeshe, that dead arhat. Now, words always fail, but has a primordial consciousness, an unborn, unceasing, luminous consciousness that knows reality as it is, which is to say nirvana, dhammadatu, dhammata, ultimate reality, the ultimate nature of existence of all phenomena, utterly transcendent, with no other appearances whatsoever, and it's timeless, right? non-local, timeless, atemporal. But a Buddhist mind, when fully unveiled, is more than that. Otherwise, you'd be hanging out there absolutely inert and therefore useless to all of, those, all of us who are really taking our experience pretty seriously and not liking to suffer and wanting happiness. If that's all there were to, an, to a Buddha's mind, is what an arhat's mind, the post-mortem arhat's mind is, is just blissed out in that refuge, amazing, wondrous, and so forth and so on, but totally disengaged, absolutely inactive, then we can have to say, well, it's nice for you, but you kind of left us in the lurch here. Did, did we not count? Did you, not, did you give a second thought when you were departing that maybe we count? And of course, for the Buddha mind, yeah, we count. So the Buddha's mind has not only the jitta kembe yeshi, the primordial consciousness that knows reality as it is, but also jinye kembe yeshi, the primordial consciousness that knows the full range of phenomena, the full multiplicity, the full range, from hell realms to Buddha, Buddha fields, the whole and everything in between. But now what do we have? Do we have one universe? You, never, you don't even have the word universe in Buddhism. Universe. There's no such word. Doesn't exist anywhere. What you find often is nutchutamchit. Nut means a physical world. Chut means the sentient inhabitants of a physical world. 
But it never says the nurtu, as if there's one universe and its sentient inhabitants. Never comes up. It's always all physical worlds and their sentient inhabitants. Nurtu tamche. There is no universe in, uni- in, in, in Buddhism. One universe that one god created and then looked at it and said, good job. It is good. It's not part of the Buddhist worldview. The notion, I just read it from E.O. Wilson, the great sociobiologist, that all religions have a creation myth. Well, sorry, Buddhism doesn't. I guess you couldn't, didn't get that far. Buddhism must be awfully secret and hidden, you know, like who knows? Who, who could have told? There's a lot of deliberate ignorance, unfortunately, in this modern world, which is now unjustifiable in this 21st century. There's no excuse. But in any case, there's no creation myth in these core teachings of the Buddha. They crop here, up here and there, the, the monkey and the demon in Tibet. It's very cute, you know. But do you find that in the Pali Canon? Do you find that in the Mahayana Sutras? I don't think so. So, not one. One physical environment for every sentient being. One physical world for every sentient being. A multiplicity. For as many sentient beings as there are, so are there the physical worlds that those sentient beings are inhabiting. And the interesting term here, we're going to go a bit late, it's the breaks. This word that I'm translating, as well as I can, I've given it a lot of thought, that I'm translating as physical world, in Tibetan it's called nu, which means a container, a vessel, like a cup that you put water into. It's a container, right? Sentient beings, it's not called sentient beings. I I called it sentient inhabitants. It's as good as I can do. But the literal world, uh, literal meaning is chu, which means the nutriment, like food, the nutritious food. So you have a, a bowl and you have some brown rice in it. The bowl is a physical environment. The brown rice is the sentient being. The whole point of the bowl is for the sentient being, is for the the rice. If you don't have any food, then you don't need a bowl. You don't need an eating bowl. Right? But for every chu, Marta's a chu, Amy's a chu, Fran's a chu, each of you is the juice. You're the juice. You're the juice. You're the juice. And each of you has a container. Look around. 360 degrees. Who's in the center of your container? That's your nu. That's your nu. That's your container. It's a big container. Congratulations. You've got a lot of elbow room. You should never say, give me some space. You've got lots of space. Right? And each one of us is at the center of our container. And moreover, an absolutely core theme, and we're going to get to this tonight, is as your mind transforms, you become a bodhisattva, become an Arya bodhisattva, a Vajrayana practitioner, a Dzogchen practitioner. You're transforming, purifying, purifying exactly correlated to the transformations and purification of your mind, your whole environment is transforming. And when you're a 10th-stage Arya Bodhisattva and you're about to become a Buddha, whoever you are, wherever you are, your environment is Akanishta, the highest Purim. Right? Your husband or wife may still be an ordinary sentient being, so they're just living in Phuket or Detroit or Buenos Aires. That's where they live. And you're right there in bed with them, and you're an Akanishta. Choose your partners carefully. They may not like that. Like, honey, honey. (laughs) Let's go out and have some fun, shall we? Honey, 
Let's go out and some, I've heard there's a really good movie in town. Quick, let's go, honey. And you're dwelling in Akanishta. So remain in Akanishta, go see a movie. Mm. <laughs> Choose your spouse as well. You know. Choose your Dharma companions well. So we're going to get to this tonight. But if one is really drawn to, intuitively drawn to, maybe even becomes committed to the Dzogchen path, there's a real hard problem that has to be addressed. And that is, for as long as you're still believing in, and not only believing like an intellectual position, but viewing physical reality as being really out there, this thing in and of itself, you know, the objectively real world that scientists believe they've been studying for the last 400 years and doing a very, very good job. So many practical benefits, hedonically. You know. As long as you are still believing in and viewing your body and your physical environment as being really out there, the door to Dzogchen is completely closed in your face. And I'll tell you why. It's not dogma. It's not just, oh, Alan Wallace's opinion. Who cares about his opinion? Even I don't really. But if you're in the midst of a, of a dream and you believe in and you are viewing your entire dream environment as being out there, existing by its own nature, physically real, and you are quite tenaciously holding to that view. You know, this is the realist view. I'm a realist here. These are material phenomena. And you want to prove it in your dream? You want to prove that it's, it's real and physically real? I can tell you how. It's very, it's very persuasive. Want to watch me? Ready? <laughs> Need I say more? And I invite you, one by one, come and slap here with me. We all line up and see if any of you don't feel what I'm feeling and make the sound I'm feeling. And is that not physically real? When 40 people line up one by one and smack the chair then is it now not obvious that this is a real chair? Forty people now. This is third person multiplied. Third person perspective, right? Smack the chair. Is it really there? One person after, in, after another in the dream says, you're right, yep, you're right, yep, you're right, yep, you're right. Okay, seven billion people line up. We want to get everybody in on this. You know. Is it really there, objectively and physically? And have we all agreed now that chairs are really there. And that goes for everything else. Mountains and valleys and galaxies, they're really there. Are we all agreed? The chair is good enough. You don't have to smack galaxies and solar systems and neutrinos and so forth. A chair is a good example. This is as physical as anything else. As physical as an atom, as physical as a galaxy. If this is inherently real, then all of the others are real. Because this came from stardust, right? And it's composed of atoms, right? So this is a really good example. So as long as you're holding that view in the dream, you have hermetically sealed yourself in non-lucidity. And you'll never become lucid. For as long as you believe that, defend that, maybe even get angry when people challenge it, and become and dismissive and ridicule them and disparage them and don't give them tenure, which is even worse, you'll never become lucid. You'll never wake up. And you'll never experience the joy of knowing reality as it is. And you'll always be a pawn. Because you know what non-lucid dreams are like. 80% of them are unpleasant, manifestly unpleasant. 
and 100% of them, you don't really have anything that can re be reasonably called free will. Because you're just moved by past habitual predilections, habit, just, and you're thrown into the dream. You didn't choose what kind of dream to have. Once you're there, you're just kind of reacting, ignorant and deluded and reacting, and I like you and I don't like you and I hope this and I fear that, and oh, she's going to make me happy and he makes me really pissed off and unhappy. And as long as you're in that syndrome, your chances of becoming lucid, you might get some hedonic pleasure. You can have sex in a dream. That's fun. You can have a good meal in a dream. You can also get hit by a truck in a dream, and that hurts. But as long as you're there, hoping and fearing for things in the outside to make you happy, and as long as you're grasping onto that everything there is physically real, then you'll never experience the joy of freedom and the joy of knowing reality as it is and the extraordinary range of possibilities that come immediately and then with a crescendo as you become lucid and then more and more and more lucid until you see you're utterly free and all that limits your freedom is your imagination. The parallel is very, very strong. So, for a, one dwelling in Rikpa, to not only see reality as it is, but to see the full range of phenomena, is not to see some big universe with six realms of existence and the desire form and formless realms as they really are, but rather, how does the Buddha, when the Buddha's own perspective is just this pure vision, right, where there's never been a samsara really emerging, then how does the Buddha know about Phuket? Because this is not a pure land. There are lots of snakes here, by the way. If I created a pure land, there would be no poisonous snakes. Maybe some nice warm ones who just want to hug you. But the ones with the nasty venom they have here, there would be no snakes in my universe, I tell you. They keep me the creeps. So as far as I'm concerned, Phuket is not a pure land. You know? There's no mold in the ventilators. Right? In a pure land. Gives you, asthmat, you know, gives you a lot of allergic reaction. Not in my pure land. So this is Phuket. So how does the Buddha know about Phuket, the one we're experiencing? How? And et cetera, et cetera. 100 billion galaxies, there's a lot of Phuket's out there. Right? How? I tell you how. Because it's by a process of elimination. There's no other way. Through Michael's eyes. But not only Michael. The Buddha sees Michael's container from Michael's perspective. Because nobody else, nobody else has Michael's perspective. But then is the Buddha left out? No, the Buddha, has, the Buddha knows Michael's perspective. From where? Michael's perspective. Because the Buddha's mind is indivisible from Michael's mind. Michael's coarse, dualistic, conceptual mind. Buddha's mind is indivisible. Buddha's looking out throughout Michael's eyes and seeing what Michael sees. Buddha sees the multiplicity of worlds from Patrice's eyes and Kim's eyes and Brian's eyes. And that's how the Buddha knows the multiplicity of all the worlds. And that's where the Buddha's compassion is. The Buddha's compassion for Brian is not, oh, look at poor Brian over there. From Buddha's perspective, Brian's already a Buddha. He doesn't need any compassion. But the Buddha is aware of Brian's experience from Brian's perspective. And so therefore, the Buddha's compassion for Brian is non-dual. Buddha experienced Brian and wishes, may I be free.
Do not look for Buddha outside yourself. Right? Core Samaya in Dzogchen. Whatever you come up with will just be the empty appearances of your own conceptual mind, fabricating one thing after another after another. Final point. The whole history of science from the time of Galileo, so brilliant as it is, of course, was not without bias or prejudice. No sensible historian of science believes that anymore. And no knowledgeable, philosophically astute scientists believe that either. They know that there have always been non-scientific influences on scientific modes of inquiry and theorizing, take, trying to make sense of the world. It's always been true. But they try to be free, as free of prejudice as they can and have the best instruments they can, noise-to-sound ratio and all that kind of business. But in terms of being totally without any non-scientific influences on the scientific pursuit, well, that's a very nice myth, and you might get a lot of funding if you can persuade people for that, that we alone have the approach to reality that's completely free of subjective bias. Some people still believe that. They're incredibly gullible. Because no astute scientist or philosopher or historian of science believes that's complete rubbish with no empirical evidence and massive amount of evidence to the contrary. But there is a historical trajectory here. It's undeniable. And that is, if we do identify Galileo, which Einstein did, I think he knew science pretty well, Galileo is the father of modern science. Copernicus was a brilliant mathematician, made no observations, no experiments, had a really cool idea. But he wouldn't let it get published until he was dead. Didn't want to get, you know, excommunicated. Galileo was the first one. And he was everything. He was just, he was the whole deal, you know, so wonderful. And he was a very devout Christian, trained as a contemplative as a youth. But the real point here I'm getting at, with maybe too, too many words, is that modern science began with physics and astronomy. Astronomy is a branch of physics. It's celestial physics. So the first revolution, the first great advances that gave rise to knowledge that you can never revert from, you can never go back to thinking the Earth is really absolutely immovable in the center of the universe. It, you can't go there anymore. Right? Uh, and likewise, balls rolling down a ramp, accelerating, and so forth and so on. He made the first revolution. He triggered, he catalyzed, he created the first revolution in modern science, in the science of the natural world, and the branch of science. What he was interested in was the physical. That's it. He was not a biologist. He didn't do anything in biology. And he's not a psychologist. He had nothing to say about the nature of mind. I don't think at all. Because he wasn't interested. He wanted to know what the universe looks like from God's perspective. He wanted to leap beyond, have a direct crossing over beyond the human mind and go directly to God's perspective. And he thought he could do that conceptually, inferentially, by way of mathematics. right? But it started with physics. That's the real deal that if we, look, if we look at three large categories of reality, the inanimate physical universe, the container, living organisms, biological living organisms, life as we know it, with so you know, life, let alone consciousness. I, myself, Buddhism says plants are not conscious, but they are, we can say they're alive. Okay. But you, does, does the carrot go ouch when you bite it? I certainly hope not. And there's no evidence that it does. So why don't we just rest and say, trees, to say they're not alive at all is kind of like, well, in English anyway, there's a dead tree, there's a live tree, there's a healthy tree, a sick tree. I mean, this is, this is just kind of like, this is good English, and it translates over to German, Spanish, and so forth. And so there's physics of the life sciences, and for us that's carbon-based biological life, 
because we don't know. We can't measure any other kind of life using the instruments of technology. And then we have the science of the mind, the mind sciences. Well, the first revolution in the history of science over the last 400 years was unequivocally nothing other than a revolution in the physical sciences. And it was Galileo, and then it was the lights turned on with Newton. Suddenly, whoa, I think we got it. Mission control, we've got a lock. This is it. This is the big one. Newton, thank you, the greatest scientist in history, say many, many scientists, right? He turned the lights on. But for the physical universe, he had no insight about life, biology, and so forth. That was 1687. So now we go on to 1859, Darwin, 20 years of research, radically empirical research, examining very closely the phenomena of seeking to understand. And then his brilliant work. And of course, Alfred North. Nope, Alfred Russell Wallace, known by his friends as Al Wallace. Oh, not the one who has Allen Institute, that one's somebody else. So back to serious things. But they did co-discover co it simultaneously, independently. They're both quite brilliant. But Darwin did more elaborate research and developed the theory more elaborately than Wallace did. So even though it's a bit of a raw deal, there's a lot of politics involved, Darwin deserves a lot of the credit. And they had a very mickable relationship, namo to both of them. They had a very mickable relationship. Really, really good. But that was the next one. That was the next revolution where you cannot go back. You cannot view the human species or any other species in the same way. Because bear in mind, before Darwin, it was assumed, based on the Bible, that all the species were immutable. They were, giraffes were always giraffes. Humans were always human because God, God created them as human. And, well, if you're savvy, you just can't believe that anymore. You know, in the scientific context, you can't believe that anymore. So the second revolution was biology. And then... Frankly, I think a lot of people would agree with me. There really has been no comparable revolution in the mind sciences. I mean, a lot of really interesting ideas and insights. But a lot of people think Freud was rubbish. So you can't say it's a Freudian revolution because there's no consensus there at all, let alone Jung, let alone B.F. Skinner or John Watson. I mean, they're ideas, but they're largely you know, dismissed nowadays. So, or William James, a lot of his ideas just kind of like... There's so many William James professorships that are held by people who do everything contrary to William James. It's really quite ironic. The, this, the, center, the, what, the Department of Psychology, the big building at Harvard, where William James was, is called the William James something. And they do everything opposite of William James. It's amazing. His college, his department that he founded, and his building with his name on it, and he said, first, foremost, and always, introspection should be the way to go. And they say, oh, I don't think so. No, we're going to study the brain and behavior, brain and behavior. Well, after all, the mind is this brain. But William Jones, thanks a million. You know, as we completely do the opposite of everything you advocated. So it's quite ironic, that. But the point here is, well, I think it's kind of like obvious there has been no revolution in the mind sciences comparable to that of Darwin for the life sciences and Galileo and company for the, mind, for the physical sciences. So it's physics, big revolution, and not only revolution, but massive growth of knowledge. And then when biology comes along, with, and then not only Darwin, but there's Mendel with genetics and so forth, then biology comes second, and then in the 1875 or so forth, then finally comes the straggler, the runt of the litter, trying to scratch at the door of the scientific, you know, the scientific community. Uh, let's study the mind scientifically too, but it's coming in at the very end. Well, what comes out of this, of course, is that, you know the history, it's physics, biology, and then psychology in the evolution of modern science. 
right? And then as soon as biology is really getting some traction by, by way of Darwin and so forth, it is assumed universally, I mean virtually with no exceptions, that life, organic life, plants and then animals and so forth, they're all emerging out of inorganic, non-living matter. It's assumed kind of without exception. And also in the creation myth of modern science, we had the planet emerging five billion years ago, but life didn't emerge until maybe three and a half billion years ago. Where did life emerge from? What was already there? And that was the physical, inorganic physical, right? Amino acids and things like that. But then something non-conscious but organic and living that eats and poops and regenerates one way or another, well, then now we can bring into Darwin because he had no idea how life started. And there's no scientific theory right now about how life started. A whole bunch of ideas, none of them testable. But what they all agree on is life emerged from inorganic matter. They all agree on that one. I have all kinds of theories, very interesting ones, very intriguing ones, silly ones. None of them are testable, therefore they're not scientific theories, although some people really tenaciously hold to them. And broad consensus, life emerges from non-life, matter. But then we run the fast forward three and a half billion years to the evolution to human species, which is like 200,000 years ago, Homo sapiens sapiens. We're really the new kid on the block here. And somewhere along that line, from the first single-celled living organisms, like amoeba, what have you, until now, somewhere along the line, nobody's got a clue, really, scientifically, consciousness emerged. That you don't just have a little organic compound there reacting to its environment, non-consciously, but somebody's actually having experiences, as we all know we do. Dennett may deny that, but it's literally inconceivable how he can think that to me. But we'll leave Dennett behind, because it's so obvious. We do, we're not going to insult our common sense here. We're experiencing something. Right? A thermostat doesn't, we do, gee, go figure. You know? But somehow, it is widely assumed, virtually without question, in the scientific community, that consciousness, that first primitive living organism that was actually aware of anything whatsoever, like, I'm hungry, or it's too hot, or she's pretty, whatever, without thinking that. But they're experiencing something, there are appearances to them, that that first consciousness emerged from what? Biological processes that are totally physical. And likewise, I don't know any scientist that really thinks a sperm cell, a little polywog going up the uterine tract, that they're, they really look like they're guppies. Don't they? You must have all seen it. It's looked like the whole little flock of guppies flowing upstream. Like, you know, Bruce Willis did a really cute thing with that. You know, they're all scurrying, trying to hit the jackpot. You know, it looks like a whole bunch of like tadpoles. Tadpoles, all swimming upstream. I'm going to be there first. I'm going to be there first. And Bruce Willis does a really good voiceover for that in one of the movies. But I don't know any scientists that think that's a whole bunch of sentient beings trying to get up to, you know, score the jackpot. Or the big mama waiting there, come, come, to, come, come to me, baby. Come to me. Come to me. I'm waiting for you. Oh, that feels good. You know, I don't think so. You know, I don't know any scientists that believe the, the, you know, the egg is already a sentient being or that as much as they look like sentient beings, they look like tadpoles. I don't know any scientists that believe they are and Buddhism also doesn't and we have no evidence that they are, so why don't we just say they're not? But at some point, one of those little critters, you know, those little non-sentient entities, does strike the jackpot and then comes into union. And at some time from that point until sometime during the nine months of gestation, there is a sentient being in there. 
There's someone who experiences things that is not a, a body part of the mother, but is a passenger, like a passenger on a train. At some point, that's true. It's got to be true. When did it start? Well, nobody knows. But the widespread, almost universal assumption is that that initial consciousness, whether in the first, second, or third trimester, that initial moment of very primitive consciousness emerged from where? Complex interactions and configurations of neurons. Non-conscious biological interactions. It's almost universally assumed. Now, they don't know that, but it's assumed, and they unquestioningly assumed. Okay? So in other words, in short, physics, biology, psychology. That the biology emerges from the physics, the psychology emerges from the biology. We can see if you're a physicist, you can write a book about the mind without having any training whatsoever and be taken seriously. Right? Michio Kaku. And it's selling like hotcakes, right? Even though he has no training whatsoever, I checked, in any aspect of mind studies. But as a physicist, uh, it's a privileged access. If you're a physicist, you can also write about biology. There are many who have. Edwin Schrodinger wrote a whole book on life, the nature of life. He's a physicist. He had no training, as far as I know, in biology. But many physicists have talked about life because they've got, they've got, the, you know, they've got the, 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 what, the platinum card. They can talk about anything if you're a physicist because everything else is following after that. You've got the platinum card, right? But if, you have only the, if you're only trained as a biologist, try it. Be trained only as a biologist, have your undergraduate, graduate work all in biology, and then write a book about physics. See how that comes down. See how that's welcomed by the physics community. Say, who the hell do you think you are? You're a biologist. What do you write about physics for? You don't know. Give it a rest, man. This is crap. You, know, this, you don't know what you're talking about, right? But now if you're a, neuro, if you're a biologist, an evolutionary biologist, a neurobiologist, you can write about the mind as much as you like and claim authority, right? Eric Kandel, neuroscientist, writes extensively about the nature of mind, right? Neurobiologists, evolutionary biologists write extensively. Other sociobiologists, Edward, Edward O. Wilson, brilliant man, very fine sociobiologist, writes extensively about the nature of mind. Any training? No. I'm a biologist. I can write about that which emerges from biology, I don't need to study psychology. I'm a biologist. But now find a biologist who has no training in biology at all, write a book about biology. See how that goes down. Forget it. You're going to be laughed off. The, laughed off. Never get published. If it's published, be ridiculed and be thrown in the trash. What are you doing? You're a psychologist. You're a therapist. You're writing about biology. You have no training in biology. What are you? And crazy? Right. So we see a very clear asymmetry there. But the final point, because I know it's been long, but I'm really enjoying this, <laughs> is that there's the evolution of modern science. It's physics and then biology and then psychology. The first two have had, well, physics has gone through true revolutions, the second one with Max Planck and so on. Biology has been through one big revolution. Crick and Watson with DNA is definitely an extension, but it's not, you know, it doesn't overturn the apple cart. And the mind sciences, well, really haven't had a revolution yet. They, unlike the other two, have never devised any means for actually rigorously, sophisticatedly observing the phenomena they're ostensibly trying to understand, nature of the mind. They've never developed attention skills or introspection, so no revolution for you. Darwin, yes. Galileo, yes. Newton, yes. Einstein, yes. Max Planck, Werner Heisenberg, and Niels Bohr, yes. 
because they either did or they knew people who were very carefully investigating the phenomena under inspection. But here's, I'm going to finally let the shoe drop. That's the evolution of science. It went from physics to biology to psychology, or mind sciences. And out of that progression, which was not inevitable, nobody told Galileo that he had to study physics. He could have been interested in biology. Nobody told Darwin that he had to be interested in biology. He could have been interested in physics or psychology. And likewise for William James and all the people working in psychology. They could have been told to study physics. So there was, God didn't foreordain that, that physics had to come first, and then biology. And that's how it worked out, by many non-scientific influences. Right? Isn't that clear? It wasn't nature that decreed, Galileo will be a physicist. Darwin, you're up. Biology for you. William James, psychology, go for it. Oh, I forgot to give you introspection skills. Sorry. No. There's no orchestra conductor here. Otherwise, he would have told William James how to develop attention and introspection. He might have actually started a revolution in the mind sciences, but he didn't have the equipment. But here's the shoe dropping. Our whole vision of the, the, the origin and evolution of the universe is very clearly a reflection of the origin and evolution of modern science. Is that an accident? Really? Just a cool coincidence? That in the, in the beginning was only inorganic physical matter, and then three and a half billion years ago on our planet, then organic matter, life emerged, and then sometime after that, consciousness emerged. Lo and behold, just exactly in the sequence of the evolution of modern science. That is the history of the universe relative to the history of modern science. It has its truth relative to that perspective. But to believe it has any truth independent of that perspective is blind faith. And many people have it because they can't imagine anything outside. Buddhism doesn't share that trajectory. Buddhism didn't start with physics, didn't then move on to biology, and then on to psychology. Buddhism started with there's reality of suffering, and that has no meaning whatsoever if you don't immediately include mind. And for us who are, are embodied, physical pain really counts, right? And so mind, biology, and the physical universe, which makes us hurt a lot, were already there from the beginning in the first noble truth, right? So from the Buddhist perspective, it's always been true among the body, speech, and mind, this is how you start Dzogchen practice. The first thing in Dujum Lingba's writings, again and again, the first thing is, among body, speech, and mind, it's going right to your existence. Not the history of the universe, or what Galileo said, or Aristotle, or Krishna, or anybody else said. No, you're, you're the center of your universe. Let's just start right there. You've got a body, speech, and mind. Check. Correct. Are we on the right same page? Good. Now check this out. But you need to check it out until it comes to a, a definitive, certain, Knowledge. Among the three, which is primary? Body, speech, or mind? Which is primary? Well, I won't try to defend it, but yeah, Marta's right. There is only one answer in Buddhism. But it's not because Buddha said so. It's because, check it out, you know. You check it out pragmatically between your physical welfare and your mental welfare, which, which is more important. Would you rather be joyfully happy internally but be maybe dying from cancer? Or would you like to be suicidally depressed and have radiantly good health? What's your choice? I mean, it's a choice one could conceivably make. 
So which do you want? I'll, I'll read this evening about one more yogi, another one. This was kind of big death week this last two weeks or so. Quite a celebration, the sad passing of wonderful teachers. But one by one, and I have another one here. I've heard about now several people have sent emails, and now somebody actually printed that out. One more yogi. I'll read it. I'll save that until this afternoon. Mind is primary. Mind is primary. Because of consciousness, because of primordial consciousness, the effulgence of consciousness, out of that come life. The, the, the containers that we dwell in are created for the sake of the juice. It's called the anthropic principle. A number of physicists have found that. As they discover, as they explore the laws of nature, of the universe, they're saying, but this is amazing. That I mean, this has come up a lot by very, very responsible, very, very distinguished scientists. They look at the precise laws of nature, the precise freezing point of water, and many other points. The fact that gravity is an inverse square law, not an inverse cube law. And so they look at these many laws of nature and constants. Freezing, a big one is the freezing point of water. And they found, gosh, these laws of nature, if they were a little bit different, we wouldn't be here. So you have two, one of two conclusions. Either is, well, go figure. I mean, that's a tautology. If we weren't here, then we wouldn't know about the laws of nature. If the laws of nature weren't conducive to life, we wouldn't be here. So why did you find that interesting? Okay, fair enough, that's true. Are there many universes out there that we don't know anything about that where the, the freezing point of water is 33 degrees Fahrenheit and there's no life, there's no organic life in it? Because some of these are really, really important. They're necessary. But then we don't know anything about those, so those are total speculation. So there are some very responsible scientists and saying, you know, it looks like the universe is organic life-friendly that the actual laws and constants of the physical universe, they seem to have a teleology built into them, that they are exactly what is necessary to bring forth, to enable the emergence of organic life, carbon-based organic life, like we and the animals, that it's an anthropic. There's something about this universe that is conducive for us to be here, as if we're actually meant to be here, without invoking God or anything. A lot of them are atheists. Well, the, the Buddhists would say, well, yeah, the karma of sentient beings, you can say. It's that there is consciousness is fundamental. And consciousness manifests in environments when there is karma for sentient beings to be born as organic organisms. The environment rises up to meet them, and there's an environment like planet Earth that supports and nurtures carbon-based organic living creatures like us animals and human beings. But the consciousness doesn't come from matter and doesn't come from complex configurations of organic matter. It comes from the substrate consciousness. <laughs> you know, coming in, coming in, coming in. Ultimately comes from the ground consciousness. And so that whole story, a mindless, non-living universe giving rise to a mindless living organisms, giving rise to mindful organisms. You say, well, that's, that's all very well, but what you've just told us is a cosmic projection of the history of your own science. And why else would any, why would any, why would any else, anybody else who's not caught in your trajectory believe that? Because it's directly correlated to the evolution of your science. Whereas we Buddhists, we didn't have that evolution. Therefore, we do not believe 
that consciousness has to emerge from complex organic processes, and complex organic processes have to emerge from inorganic, complex or uncomplex um, processes. We don't have to buy your story, because your story is embedded in history, influenced by many, many, many non-scientific influences. So again, maybe just the whole history of the universe, 13.8 billion years, is like, here's the human mind of Eurocentric civilization for the last 400 years, like a projector, going, there's the universe. 13.8 billion years old, 100 billion galaxies, space extending out billions of light years, a massive holographic display all projected by human beings living over the last 400 years. Enjoy your day. And our meetings will be 45 minutes late. There's more coming this afternoon. Not this, it will not be a repetition. But one way or another, this tenacious appearance of there being an absolutely objective physical universe, you have to grapple with that. Because as long as you're holding on it, you will not become lucid, which means you will not realize Rikpa. You can't just say, oh, that's metaphysics. Oh, that's, eh, 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 eh. I'm sorry, but as long as you're gra- in a dream, as long as you're grasping onto the objective existence of phenomena in a dream, you're not going to become lucid. And that's true for us here in the waking state, too. Not going to happen. So this means we have to grapple with, we have to come to terms, we have to wrestle to the ground the prevailing views, which are very, very strong, very powerful, and articulated by very intelligent people. That there's one universe out there, it's absolutely real, and frankly, there's one really effective way of learning about it, and that's science. So you mystical people with all that, you're, you're very sweet, and we really like the Dalai Lama. But you know, we really can't take anything you say seriously. And if you say anything, we'll have to test it scientifically. And if we can corroborate it, well, then it's fine. But if we can't, well, you're really sweet people, though. And we like compassion. You know, really, we'll send you a real nice kata. I think you like katas. We'll send you a kata. Enjoy your day. See you a bit later.